Do Markets Promote Virtue? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Jeff Kello. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Jeff Kello. Jeff is an associate professor in the College of the Humanities and the Department of Political Science at Carleton University. He specializes in the history of ideas. His current research focuses on the political and economic thought of the Enlightenment. Having published recently on Adam Smith and Benjamin Franklin, Jeff is currently engaged in a long project examining the cultural and philosophic substance and significance of Franklin's autobiography. That work, tentatively entitled The Civic Education of the Spirit of Commerce, is the subject of both a manuscript project and a number of upcoming papers and presentations. Jeff earned his master's in political science with a specialization in political theory from McMaster University and a PhD in political science from Carleton University. Jeff, welcome to The Curious Task. It's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. And thanks for being on with us. So Jeff, we frame each episode around a question and kind of go wherever the answers and conversation takes us. Our question today is, do markets promote virtue? And there's a few approaches one can take to exploring this question. One of them is one you find interesting, from what I can tell, through the life and writings of someone like a Benjamin Franklin. So I want to focus a lot of our conversation on that idea of virtue, but also through Benjamin Franklin. So let, let's start with Franklin himself, actually, before we get into some of the other concepts. At a high level, how would you summarize who Benjamin Franklin was? I know a lot of people hear a lot of things about kites and so on and so forth, but obviously you have a, a broader picture of him than that. So for someone coming fresh to that, if they can these days, who's Benjamin Franklin? Sure. I think, well, I mean, the kites thing is interesting because he was probably the most famous person of the 18th century, or at least certainly the most famous American. Um, his image was probably the, the, literally his portrait was probably the most widely disseminated face of the 18th century. And people knew him, they, even in the 18th century, people knew him because of the kite, which is uh, only really part of the story, obviously, of his, of his discovery of the nature of electricity, which was a central question uh, in the 18th century. People had learned how to store electricity, how to discharge electricity, how to harm themselves with electricity, but they didn't understand what electricity was yet. And it was Franklin who figured out uh, what it was. So that made him understandably famous. But he was also, I mean, Franklin is is one of the sort of the the big four or five figures of the American Revolution alongside, um, obviously, people like George Washington and John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. Um, he was uh, one of the wealthiest man, men, even though he started very modestly, which is something I assume we're going to talk about. He was one of, by the end of his life, he was one of the wealthiest men uh, in the United States. Uh, he was an, an author of very influential pamphlets. He was a diplomat during the war, the Revolutionary War. He was the American colonies representative to Britain through much of the middle of the 18th century. And so and, and he was a, an important politician, though not an important contributor to the U.S. Constitution, an important politician in the early American uh, Republic. So in arts and letters, in politics, uh, in the economy and in economic ideas uh, and in the progress of science, he was he was at the center of all of those things. Yeah, I knew he was sort of one of those people that is sort of sometimes categorized as like a polymath, if you will, that, that kind of yeah. enlightenment man. But when I, I had a, pulled a quote here from one of your essays, too, where you sort of say, 
An incomplete list of his callings include entrepreneur, scientist, diplomat, political theorist, demographer, journalist, and community organizer. So that's a lot of hats and makes me feel a little lazy. But uh, <laughs> but but yeah. but very interesting life to say the least. Uh, you you know you you've also mentioned another thing I want to talk about is that, and this is to, that something that goes with a lot of the founding fathers at Seymour or people of that era is that you see there's there is also a lot of mythology around benjamin franklin so you know when, when you're thinking of a person like this and and you've got into a lot of his writings and, and think a lot about his life how do we balance the fact that you know of course he was very accomplished and wore so many hats and there's there's a lot of interesting tales about those but also there's this mythology we need to stay away from so, so what is that mythology and, and how should we and in your mind why should we stay away from that so I think there's actually two sides to the myth of Benjamin Franklin. Um, and one of them, which maybe we'll talk about later, is the one he himself created, um, and which, which we can't really stay away from, but we have to treat with care, which is, his, which is in his autobiography. But his, as a mythical figure, he's sort of, he's interesting because he is used, by, he's used both as, both negatively by people like Max Weber as sort of a, the myth of the ceaselessly acquisitive capitalist, mm. which isn't, which I think is very unfair to him. But he's also used as a myth by people who want to make him into uh, a caricature, sort of an, of the American ideal. Um, and neither is really useful. I actually I came to add to Benjamin Franklin as the result of a of an undergraduate presentation that one of my students made where she began her presentation by talking about how Adam Smith and Benjamin Franklin had worked together on the wealth of nations, which right. is not true at all. This did not happen. Um, but it's really interesting that this is a well-established, prior to the internet, this is a well-established myth that goes back to at least the middle of the 19th century. And I thought, when I heard this presentation, I thought this is wrong. But it's really interesting that this myth would endure for so long when they really barely knew each other. Um, and I think that's the, the, the myth of their friendship was part of a kind of mythologizing of American free markets and, and Amer an American commercial society uh, where you had to have the two patron saints, Adam Smith and Benjamin Franklin, working together. They just had to be on the same team. It didn't, it, it was sort of a, a necessary founding story, even though it's it's untrue. And in fact, there was an article written in 1924 that showed that this wasn't true. And yet it just, it keeps on going. You can find this myth of their association in one form or another as late as the 1990s, even though, again, it's just not the case. But it's part of that mythical, like, I, we need to have the founders together, right. if that makes right. sense. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so can we, I was going to ask it a, a little bit later about this, but I, we may as well get into it now because it is, this is very fascinating. So, so, so what, what, what a, you, you know, this idea that, you know, Adam Smith and Benjamin Franklin collaborated, is, is it that much, is there much more detail to the, the to this myth or is it basically so just that? There, there's a story that, that the story, there are different versions of the story and they all trace back to a single uh, revolutionary war widows uh, recollections of her husband, which are wrong. Her recollections are wrong. I don't. I mean, she she probably believed that they were true. I, there's no sense that this was um, her entirely making something up. But right. they, yeah, I think they go back to uh, this. The, and the, and the story itself, in its earliest form, has Franklin being shown chapters of the Wealth of Nations as Smith writes them. 
which we know is not true because we know a great deal about how Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations, and it wasn't with Benjamin Franklin, mm. right? Um, it was large parts of it were in relative isolation. Um, and so, but you get this image, you can almost imagine sort of popular paintings of sort of Smith and, and Franklin pouring over the pages together. And it <laughs> right. just seems like it seems you can see how it would make sense and it would be a great story. I mean, uh, David Hume and Adam Smith did do that sort of thing, right? So if you could fold Benjamin Franklin into the mix as well, wouldn't that be fantastic? Nice. But it just... It sort just didn't happen. I was going to say sort of like how a lot of religious people want every Da Vinci painting and portrayal of Jesus to be real in that sort of way. Yeah. Like it didn't happen exactly like that, you know. Yeah, it's and it's the classic example of a story that was too good to check, right? Right. Yeah. That's 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 very interesting, and and I want to touch on like some of the similarities between Benjamin Franklin and Adam Smith later. That, and you've talked about this in an essay, but yeah. but we'll park we'll park that for now. You did sort of bring up in in your overview of Benjamin Franklin about tracing his life and his wealth and so on and some of that stuff. And we will narrow this down a little bit more to, uh, to, to jumping into like the virtue of markets and things like that and things that Franklin can teach us. But before we jump into that, I have one more follow-up, which was, um, I just want to pull a quote here from your essay, one of your essays, and then I want you to talk to it. So basically you say, to start at the beginning, the lessons of Franklin's early life set up a path to the fuller citizenship characterized by the practice of politics, philanthropy, philanthropy and liberty that wealth makes possible. So we're going to dive into this a lot more, but what's so special about his early life that you think actually sets the stage for him to actually go on and we'll see about all the other great stuff we talk about, but what's so special about his early life there you think sets the stage for all that? Well, his early, and here's, here's where the Franklin is someone who makes his own myths um, as opposed to Franklin, the myth, um, sort of the two mixed together in the autobiography. Franklin begins by saying that he is the, the fifth generation, the son, the youngest son for five generations, right? That, that for five consecutive generations of Franklin, of Franklin's, the youngest son's son going back. So when we think about primogenitor, about inheritance going to the oldest son, it's sort of hard to imagine someone more removed from, from inherited or unearned benefit than someone who has for five generations <laughs> been last in line, right? So he he wants to talk about uh, his, he begins the story of his early life by talking about, and, and again, to some extent exaggerating, how little was given to him sort of at birth or by circumstance in order to to highlight the distance between where he is, he starts writing uh, the autobiography in the 1770s. Uh, so it, he, in a sense, and by which point in time he's wealthy, he's in England, um, he's famous. So by, by mentioning these things, he highlights the extraordinary distance that he's come. Um, and I think he wants to highlight that it is unique to American society that such a journey is even possible. Mm. Um, and so I, there, there are lessons, there are also a number of lessons that are contained in those early years. But I think the, the, the first and most important one is that nothing was given to him and everything was earned. Right. And, and as you said, like, and I think you use like 
the term sort of self-presentation in one of your essays, which is ultimately what an autobiography is, of course. So I guess it's interesting that a reader or anyone diving into any autobiography has to keep this in mind just as a general point, right? That often you are reading a self-presentation. Like for instance, John Stuart Mill, I know there was a lot of notes and editor's notes I've read about drafts that they found that he just didn't want in there after and stuff too. So I guess even reading through someone's autobiography, especially someone like a Franklin, you're sort of jockeying between again, that sort of factual thing and, and, and taking fit for what it actually is and also making sure no one else is doing their own sort of myth building, as you were sort of saying earlier, mm-hmm. right? And he does he does a couple of interesting things. At the very, there's, in the first two sections of the autobiography, the first is dedicated to his son and the second is dedicated to what he calls the rising generation of Americans. So the audience is, and they're, and they're written, they're separated by... I think almost 13 years in terms of when the first two parts are written, but they, but changing the nature of the audience of the, of the, of the audience that's made explicit changes how you read it. Letter from a father to a son is different from a letter to a rising generation, but then even more curious than that, in that first section where he talks about his early life, he says, maybe some of these lessons will be of a benefit to you, my son, the, the strange thing about that is when he's writing that, his son is already 41 years old and the governor of New Jersey, right? right. So it's like, so you have these sort of, well, who are these, like, so it's kind of an insincere dedication. And I think what's actually going on is that he wants to create the illusion of intimacy, right? So that you'll take his word for it because this is, you're kind of reading over the shoulder a note from a father to a son. Even though, again, there, I mean, how much, I mean, I have an 18-year-old. He doesn't listen to me. I can't imagine if he was 41 and the governor of an American state, you know? so Right, yeah. Uh, but 41 yeah. and the governor of a state is not exactly that sort of yeah. youth just about to take on the world sort of stage exactly. of life, you know? Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. I, and, and I think now I'm going to ask another question here, but we'll see, I think, about you and I together sort of striking that balance between chasing Franklin's life and also some of the other, you know, things about our main theme here, which is the virtue in market. So I think we'll see if we can do that balance together. So in his autobiography, he suggests um, that commercial values prepare both the character and the necessary conditions for the realization of liberty. So this is a a pretty strong statement here. So before I ask some follow-ups, first, what uh, this is a I should say for the audience there that was a quote from uh, one of Jeff's essays but but what what do you mean by that that he, he's you know he he's basically thinks that the character and the necessary conditions for the realization of liberty comes from commercial virtues that's very interesting so i think it's it it's a couple of things at, at the very most basic level um bargaining commercial bargaining is a is a is a form of and a a a, a form of consent getting right of, um, of negotiation that it, that accepts a right of refusal uh, and uh, accepts the necessity of persuasion um, and that both both engaging in those acts of persuasion uh, and being the object of those acts of persuasion are both powerful affirmations of someone's rational autonomy uh, and to the extent that that um, that market transactions, more than any others are are in especially in the 18th century we don't we don't bargain now the way we would have then but especially in the 18th century would mean a constant reinforcement with with the notable and huge exception of indentured and enslaved people um 
a constant affirmation of the rational autonomy of others. And so I think when at the very end of Franklin's life, when he, and he has a complicated relationship for a large part of his life with slavery, but by the end of his life, he's an opponent of slavery. But at the very end of his life, one of the last things he writes is a letter in support of the Abolition Society of Pennsylvania, of, of which he's a member. Uh, and he talks about, quite specifically, about how the market will will give previously enslaved individuals both sides of that crucial experience of, of rational persuasion um, that they are that they are denied by virtue of their enslavement. So I think that's that's perhaps the most important part of that of that sentiment as Franklin expresses it. Right. And, and I had a quick note about something specifically on the topic of slavery and his reflections about that, but, but I'll park that specific topic for now. But, but, okay. but just to follow up on the, on the first part you're saying there too. So I, f- I find it interesting that it, although it's a, it's a, it's a small sentence, I think there's two distinct things to unpack there. If, if commercial virtues are preparing both the character on the one hand of somebody and then also the necessary conditions for the realization of liberty, it seems that there's a sort of a double pronged aspect to this thinking not only is it individualistic in a certain way but also more like Mm -hmm. social and i found that a very interesting back half because i think a lot of people especially in you know for instance quote-unquote classical liberal circles you have to talk about things at the individual level and what markets can bring to that and and so on or or just at the micro exchange level but the idea about the necessary conditions for the realization of liberty on mass i think that's very interesting too that he seems to think that's tied to not only a commercial interaction but a commercial society I, th- I thought that was yeah. very interesting. Well, yeah. And I think one of the very first things, one of the very first stories he tells about his life um, is him engaging in a project with others. And it turns out it's, he builds a weir out into a pond so that they can fish better. And he actually nicks the rocks from a construction site and gets caught and got, gets in a great deal of trouble as a result. But the, the first part of it, and, and I, th- I think that's actually an interesting story. The first part of it is like with a commercial society, that that projects involve cooperation, constant, fluid acts of cooperation and collaboration. And so uh, alongside bargaining, you have you have cooperation. And yet he still needs, and it's his father who who explains to him to to not forget the 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 morals, the moral lessons that might not always be obvious around cooperation and collaboration mm. um, that, that, that set apart thieves that are cooperating from shopkeepers who are cooperating. But I think those, the, and all the way through the autobiography, all the way through his life, he is, he is a man of projects. Um, he, is, he is constantly uh, organizing schemes of cooperation and collaboration. Um, and those, those, again, are at the very heart of a commercial society. Right. And another element that just popped into my head as you were saying both of your responses just over the course of the last couple minutes there too is that this idea about, I was going to say it applies mostly to the character of somebody, but also I think the the broader sense too, social-wise, is that, you know, liberty is not only about behavior and and being a virtuous person in that framework isn't just about what what you can do to exchange, for example, and, and, and how you should go about getting what you want. But I guess an important aspect of this too is realizing that under these sort of conditions, you don't always get what you want. And there's sort of this pluralist notion that some people might, and you might, you might not, or you can't, you know, on the one hand, you can persuade, but other, on the other hand, you might fail to persuade. And, and it's that sort of tension, I guess, that, you know, someone like Franklin would see 
um, even in political, if, if you take the political sphere, just the social sphere and separate from the economic sphere, the, these sort of virtues and, and sort of understandings can be learned in, in the commercial society. So I think that that's very interesting, too, about what, what, what you sort of, if you will, don't get under liberty to is, is everything you want, of course. That's impossible. Yeah, and he, he Franklin starts the... As Franklin starts the autobiography by listing what he calls his errata, his five E R R A T A, double T A, I can't remember. Anyway, his these these big mistakes he makes, and so there's no get and and each each one of them, uh, I'm working on something right now where I, I want to argue each one of them is about misunderstanding an uh, an obligation to others, hmm. um, but in, in each one of them. Uh, I mean, the, the very presence of each one of them suggests you can get these things wrong, right? This isn't, Franklin isn't a story of moving from one victory to another. It isn't a story from one success to another. And in fact, in a lot of ways, he, especially early on, it's a story of failures, um, a story of both personal failings, some of which are quite substantial, uh, and also naivete. And it's, those things are, there's a sense in which, and they, they occur as Franklin moves from Boston to Philadelphia to Britain and then back again. And they, those mistakes are only made possible by the fact that he is free, right? Like he right. starts to make right. big mistakes when he leaves home. Um, so it isn't sort of a, it, it isn't an unproblematic tale of sort of self-discovery. There's a lot of wasted youth in Franklin. Um, that he's that he's willing to admit, and essentially, I think, especially with these these big mistakes he makes in his personal life, I think there is a a suggestion that both individuals and communities have to like some of the ways that they learn things is are, are is only ever going to be through making mistakes. Um, so yeah, right, that makes sense. Right. No, that does make a lot of sense. You know, yeah. having having not only. Um, you know, the right to try something, but also having the fact of failure placed in front of you is also something that would be part of character building and can yeah. be looked at as virtuous unto itself for sure. And what's really striking is that, so the, the word autobiography doesn't even exist yet when Franklin writes his autobiography. Hmm. Um, and yet he, had, and as you mentioned earlier, people put, put a spin on their lives when they write their autobiographies, which is understandable. I certainly would. There'd be things I would leave out. But Franklin admits to to some really bad conduct uh, early in his life um and so the candor with which and again i think it's it's directed towards in, important educational ends for his audience but the candor with which he speaks about like, some really bad behavior like um one of the worst things he does is he admits to um, and it's not clear exactly what it is, but some kind of aggressive sexual advance upon his upon one of his closest friends partner. Right. And it's I mean, again, these are things that you would expect someone would want to leave out of their autobiography. And yet he he's completely forthright. And I think they it's it's interesting to think about the question of mythology, mythologizing his life that, and what his larger purpose is that I, I like, I don't think he includes these things just 
because like you get the sense sometimes that Rousseau in his, in his confessions, just half of it is just meant to shock and scandalize. <laughs> right. Um, but they're there, they're there for a reason. And he's willing to highlight really big moments of failure in order to get across a lesson that he thinks is important. Right. Yeah. So, so, so if one even, <laughs> even grants, as we were saying that it's ultimately a self-presentation that's, you know, filtered in a certain way, you yeah. know, there, there is all back to that word. There is virtue in basically seeing that even if we assume that everything he wants in the autobiography is very intentional to be teaching a lesson, he isn't only using, you know, positive examples of himself or as, as you were saying, which is, I think very, very interesting. We're actually at about the point where it'd be the right time to take a quick break. So we're going to do that right now. So everyone, okay. you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Jeff Kello today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Joe Aragona, Chris Rondolo, and Peter Jaworski. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Jeff Keller today. So, Jeff, I think the first half was very interesting. We we talked about, you know, so we started some of the discussion on the, on the virtues of the market and what commercial society can, te- can teach someone. We also traced a bit of Benjamin Franklin's life there. Continuing on that thought process, though, and also pivoting a bit away from what some people might think of as the, the purpose of commercial society, if you will, which is just like, you know, accumulation, profit, loss, that kind of thing. Pulling another quote from one of your essays here, you say, Franklin's carefully constructed self-presentation suggests that economic life is secondary, even transitory. It is meant to serve political and even philosophic ends. So so here we have somebody, to my understanding, that, you know, we shouldn't downplay, the, you know, the, the previous things we talked about just because of this question. You know, someone who understands the market, appreciates it, appreciates that commercial society can build virtues, and himself pulls a lot of lessons from what he learned in commercial society. Yet here you're saying he's thinking that the idea of economic life, that way some people have in their minds, is actually something secondary. It should be a step to something or something similar. Can, can you unpack that a bit and, and let me know if I'm wrong, sure. of course, on my impression? No, I think that's I think that's right. I think that the influence of Max Weber uh, and other people like Mark Twain and D.H. Lawrence has been so destructive to what I think Franklin was up to because they have this picture of like Mark Twain says about uh, Franklin that that he was always Franklin's example was always put in front of him as a boy every time he sat down to read a book every time he relaxed for a moment his parents would shove the life of Benjamin Franklin in front of him saying shouldn't you be doing something shouldn't you be improving yourself in some way mm. and especially in for Max Weber in an, an economic way um, uh, is for this is to me this is so curious because Franklin retired at 41, right? So if like the, if Franklin's life was only about economics and if Franklin was a hero of acquisition, well, I mean, he, he continued to, to manage a number of businesses, but really he stopped a full-time economic life at the age of 41. He took his foot off the gas. And so it just doesn't fit, uh, it doesn't fit this, this sort of picture of him 
as sort of dying at his desk, you know, right. continuing right. to work, you know, I mean, he did die at his desk, but he died at his desk, engaged in politics. And at the very end of his life, engaged in the fight against slavery. Um, so I think Franklin saw uh, a unique that what Franklin Franklin saw economic life as making possible, providing the material conditions that would make popular uh, possible public service uh, would make make possible uh, lifelong education that would make possible participation in, in culture. Um, so that it was always for him at least partly a means to an end. Um, that if ec economic life had the secondary status, at least in terms of its of its capacity to generate material wealth, it has it had a it was meant for something else. Um, and his own life mirrors that. Um, it mirrors that perfectly. He can't wait to spend more of his time on public questions. Um, and that's clearly why he begins to wind down his involvement in his various enterprises. Um, and he never he never fails to note that the, the economic liberty that characterizes the 13 colonies um, is what makes possible this sort of this public life that follows his economic life. Right. And I think you also noted that in his when he's writing under the, the in his poor Richard writings, when he's writing, writing mm -hmm. under a pseudonym, that that's also part of that character, too, is that the, this idea that ceaseless acquisition, as you were sort of saying, is not necessarily the point of this per, in the poor Richard writings, isn't the point of that person's life, even though that they are engaged in, in commercial um, life. It's the idea of, 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 you know, that they need some sort of, a, uh, I think you say, quote here, liberty required for inquiry. I think that's, that's very interesting. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I mean the poor Richard Alm the poor Richard's almanacs are a good example because they weren't the best selling almanacs, but they sold very very well. And he stopped he stopped publishing them after at least twenty five years, twenty six years. Um, whereas you know you think about like we're on what Fast and Furious seventeen right now, something Fast like that. Furious twenty. I, I think they're going to space now. It's, you know, it's like yeah, they're going to space now. So <laughs> yeah. they're like there's. Even just the willingness to step aside from what had been an incredibly successful project um, that he thought had run its course, um, uh, it sort of tells you a great deal about his his attitude towards acquisition. I, I suppose that ties into another thing I want to you know prod on, which is the idea you know another thing that the market seems to teach in Benjamin Franklin's eyes in terms of virtues and the kind of character it builds is that, as you said, sort of, again, in this means to the end theme is that, you know, he seems to value when I gathered from your essay, along with Adam Smith, who, who we'll get to later, that, the, you know, as you were saying, a, a sort of independence, you know, from the rest of the world sort of comes from this in, in a certain way. But but I think it's, it's very interesting because a lot of times when people refer to sort of an independent life in today's context, it still ends up being narrowly about material independence, right? So we're like, oh, you know, that person made their money in the stock market. They don't have to work another day. They're, they're independent. But it seemed that that idea of, of independence and, and what it really means to be under a condition of liberty to Benjamin Franklin, along with some of his other fellows of that era, it's, it's a little bit of a wider meaning. Like, a, you know, you were sort of talking about being a person that studies things, inquires into different subjects. So this idea that it's not just a material independence that the market can enable, I think, I think that's very interesting too. Well, it's not, it's not just, it's not only that it's not just material, it's not primarily material, right. but the, the, I mean, you can see it in, you, you can see what he wants in implication very early in his life when he, he has to steal the time to read. 
right? He used to steal the time away from work to read. Um, that he he sees, yeah, he sees the independence that prosperity grants him as not just independence from the forces of the economy, um, but independence is just generating time for the things he cares about. Um, so it's not, so you're right, it's not simply he doesn't have to worry about being poor in the future or even primarily about worrying about being poor in the future. It's primarily about what, like money buys time, buys freedom, buys activities outside the economy. Um, and it's it's that sort of, it's, it's and I know we'll talk about Adam Smith in, in a little bit, but I think that both of them, one of the, one of the things, uh, especially considering their places in the, in sort of the history of political economy, the, the sort of odd things both of them say about land ownership only make sense in the context of that being the least, they perceive it as being the least vulnerable to sort of the buffets of fortune that, and therefore the most likely to allow them to pursue their non-economic interests. Right. Right. And, and, and that's actually an interesting point, too. And I don't want to be redundant here, but I do find a very fascinating point is that you did mention earlier, back to sort of tracing Franklin's life, you, you mentioned he, he, he retired from commercial life, if you will, like in, in his 40s, and then he lived into his 80s, I believe, right? Yeah. So, so, you know, obviously, he was looking forward to enjoying, quote, you know, le- leisure and philosophy, but even on the point of leisure, I'm, I'm just thinking of this idea of what virtues he had and sort of like what he viewed, what he viewed as a well-rounded character through, through maybe not even his writing sometimes, but at least his actions, is that even Franklin takes the idea of self-fulfillment and freedom when it comes to this leisure activity, as again, as you said, is choosing activities and following interests, keeping the mind active. Um, you know, I think this should be looked at carefully when people think of, you know, this sort of enlightenment liberal picture, as you were saying, is that, the, you know, the, the sort of mythology on the one side, the hero of capitalism, as I was saying before, getting really rich and then getting to go on a yacht is not necessarily what Franklin thinks leisure means. I, he sort of means it gives you the freedom to, again, um, you know, explore self-fulfillment, not just take a break from work. I, th- I think, the, like, again, it sounds simple to say, but I think those are very interesting concepts that are competing. Well, and Frank, I mean, Franklin did know how to have a good time. Um, but oh, of he, course, yeah. But he also... Just like David Hume. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But he was he also was always turning he was always he was always turning sort of quotidian things into opportunities for inquiry. So he when he talks about perhaps arranging a marriage between uh, his son uh, and the daughter of a French and Catholic aristocrat, this developed into a whole meditation on uh, in, a, in a number of different ways, a number of different venues on the idea of of there being a true center to religion and then everything else around it that moved beyond a sort of, it would be good if we could get over this, our differences on the, on these questions, especially since Franklin was an unbeliever and not therefore very invested in them, but then into a larger, uh, a larger inquiry into the nature of religion itself. He was constantly, when he sort of, he could never, never let a question that interested him go until he chased it as far as he could chase it. And that was a big part of his idea of leisure and a big part of what was made possible by his prosperity was, was the time and the, the, the time to essentially pursue as far as he could, whatever had suddenly caught his attention. Right. 
And just from your from your personal point of view, like do you do you find it interesting, sort of that if you think of these sort of, if you will, Mount Rushmore, sort of the heroes of capitalism idea, you know, and, and some might say this is because the timeline goes on, there's a different sort of political economy and so on. But it's interesting that, you know, as you get into the late 1800s, 1900s, and then even to now, you know, the idea of this sort of hero of the spirit of capitalism, if you will, might be looked at as you, I think, as you mentioned earlier, like, like a Buffett or a Bill Gates, even a Steve Jobs. Now we have Mark Zuckerberg. Hundreds or so years earlier, you're looking at Carnegie's and and, and that sort of thing. But then when you put, as we were just talking about what Franklin's sort of status looks like on that whole thing, it ends up being a bit of a contrast of a different life. That's not to say that there wasn't philanthropy and other potentially good things that some of these other folks I just listed talked about. But again, I, I return to this idea of, on the one hand, you know, uh, independence means sort of potentially the idea that you could take a break and get into some frills in life. But for Franklin, there, there's still this maybe uniquely, dare I say, someone's going to write a letter now, you know, enlightenment idea of what it means to be a fulfilled person. I, I still go back to that point because I, f- I find that very interesting to tie it back to what you said at the beginning, which is this capitalist mythology. Maybe he doesn't necessarily belong in that round, Mount Rushmore of, of that, if that's what one yeah. thinks capitalism, you know. Is. Yeah, I don't, I, don't th- I don't think he does, even though he, I mean, in many ways, he is one of the American fathers of the notion of a franchise, of, of an economic franchise. He is, uh, you know, he's he's engaged in like the question of paper money. He makes an important contribution to that debate. That that he and he's fantastic at making money. He makes money incessantly at everything that he does. Um, but. The things that the, it's clear that the, that is not the life that he wants to be remembered for. Um, so Frank, the Mark Zuckerberg comparison is interesting because Franklin is involved in new media. He's involved in new media in terms of American newspapers. The New England Courant, which he is involved in, is is one of the first newspapers in in the colonies. Um, it is constantly controversial. Um, and it takes some positions which Franklin subsequently regret, regrets around things like smallpox inoculation that it takes clearly in order to promote the subscriptions to the service. Um, and Franklin regrets later in life the, the divisive role that he to some extent played. And he also meditates early in life. And this is where Mark Zuckerberg is interesting on in an essay called Apology for the Printer on the difference between a, a publisher and a platform. And the printing press, like as Mark Zuckerberg, and I'm not on Facebook, I just, it's, I'm not suited to it, but um, Mark Zuckerberg is constantly making the argument uh, that Facebook is a, is a platform, not a publisher, right? right? Tw- Twitter is a platform, not a publisher. And in this essay, Apology for the Printer, Franklin is wrestling with the accessibility of print material, what the responsibilities are of the of the publisher as opposed to the printer and making a distinction between the two is totally relevant for today mm-hmm. um i mean obviously there's no legislative framework um then like there is now um but there's the the same he's asking the same questions and he has the same concerns about uh e- even though he's very much a supporter of freedom of speech he has the same concerns about help and harm um that we have today about the social media as a new, as a new platform, and those concerns clearly 
for him are more important than the simple prosperity that like he gets his start as a printer. He gets his first his first taste of prosperity as a, as a printer, but he never stops thinking about what his responsibilities are outside of simply being commercially successful. Interesting. That is actually a very interesting comparison uh, that I didn't realize would be a little bit more in depth than uh, than than yeah. I than I just threw out there names in terms of people that were in in industry. That well, we'll see maybe if if Mark has a second act as a pamphleteer or something, and be interesting to hear some of his reflections for sure. Well, and the other thing you mentioned Carnegie, right? So Franklin was the founder of the first lending library in Pennsylvania, and Carnegie spends the end of his life yes. imitating Franklin, building as many libraries as he can, mm-hmm. um, and. He offers a rationale that that very much echoes Franklin's rationale uh, in favor of of public libraries, right? Privately funded public libraries, right? Right? right exactly. Yeah. Yes. And, and and shifting gears just a little bit here, um, as our time is in this last swing at at, at the very least, um, I, I I didn't want to put this off too long because uh, but basically the idea because we've kicked the can down a couple of times, but now we're here, so. You you said we'll get to it later. So so what were the similarities between Adam Smith and Benjamin Franklin? So just to say, you know, they didn't collaborate, and there's no portrait of them leaning over each other's papers that we can point to and say is is real. But but why is this even an interesting discussion in your mind? Aside from the the mythology and some of the the claims that are unfounded, um, why is it interesting to put these two men up against each other and compare them as far as similarities are concerned? What do we find there? So I think there's a there's a couple of things on the, on the most basic biographical point. You have two of the most important early proponents of of capitalism. It's not called capitalism yet. It doesn't look much like capitalism today. But right. look, for the early proponents of of economic freedom, um, are people who come from very modest backgrounds. And Smith Smith comes from a very modest background. Um, Franklin comes from a very modest background. Both of them are able to rise. They take very different routes, but they're both able to rise because their talents are are substantial. And in, in, in Smith's case, they're recognized early. Um, both of them are, uh, <laughs> in the culture, both of them are remembered more for economics than for things that they thought were more important about themselves than economics, frankly. Right. Smith, Smith always thought, I mean, he... he he loved the wealth of nations. He he revised it three times, two times, three times. I can't remember now. But the the theory of moral sentiments he was working on right up to his death, and editing, revising, adding a whole new section to, which is not something he does with the wealth of nations. Um, so they're both kind of in the culture. The the their multifaceted nature is overlooked. So they they have that in common. Um, one of the things that interests me most about them. Uh, emerges really out of what both of them have to say about the United States. And, um, it's, and I, tr- I try to make this point uh, to my students that these arguments have to be made, th- these arguments that are about the fundamentally emancipatory character of economic freedom have to be understood in the context of real and unfree alternatives that are existing at the same moment that they're writing. Right. So... So Franklin, Franklin has con- contact, uh, involvement. He's compromised by slavery. Um, he and he sees he sees how how free markets can go wrong. He's one of the main ways that he was related to slavery was that his newspapers would 
would publish ads to buy and sell slaves, uh, which allowed him to make money. But the other thing that would happen is that the, the, the printing house would be the location where the exchange would take place. So it was like a virtual eBay, right. an actual right. eBay, mm-hmm. you know, um, for for the trade in in captive and enslaved humans. And he could see how that was a, a distortion. And uh, Smith could see in his own time uh, the, the the which still existed in parts of Scotland, the ways in which some people were still tied to the land. And the ways in Scotland and in England that things like the parish rates economically tied people to land and made it impossible or near impossible for them to move to work, to move to improve their conditions. So the that sort of that that eye to the emancipatory character of economic freedom for both of them emerges as a quality of their own lives. They're 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 both the beneficiaries of an economic order they promote. And also, for both of them, it occurs against a backdrop of unfree systems of economy that they that they oppose. And we 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 read both of them. Like, so I'm I'm an intellectual historian. I'm certainly not an economist. Um, but we read them wrong when we take them out of that context. Right. That um, that I don't I don't believe this is late stage capitalism. I like. I always, whenever someone says that, I'm like, what, have you heard something? Have you heard something that I don't know about? <laughs> Who knows? Maybe capitalism is just getting started. Right, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, but uh, but we have to read them, I think, to read them the way they intended, we have we have to remember the, the alternative orders that they were in the process of overcoming. Right. Um, and... I mean, for for Franklin in particular, the strongest expression of that was his late and strong turn against slavery, and his realize his realization he always knew it was evil, um, but went along with it for a long time and participated in it for a long time. But the strong the strong recognition recognition that it was simply incompatible. Um, there's actually there's a really interesting short biography by a guy named Venture Smith, who was an African. Uh, stolen into slavery, taken to the United States at roughly the same dates as Franklin, and who becomes quite economically successful and writes a short memoir at the same time, a little bit later, but starts around the same time as Franklin, where he tells the same sorts of stories of self-improvement that Franklin does. But what's what's added is his inability to get things like to get contracts honored. So that the the ways that that Franklin is sometimes uh, exploited and abused in his early life, right. those those never end for Venture Smith because of because of his ethnicity, um, and so that sort of the for both of them the these these competing alternatives are really I think key to understanding the emancipatory character of their writing. Right, and and, and to add add to that, if I may, too, this idea that markets enable they could be a stepping stone to something in franklin's case a stepping stone to greater freedom to explore other things you know you said franklin understood this um from from slavery when he made observations of what what a slave really is and becomes under those terrible conditions i think smith also had his own ideas on like you know for instance child labor and so on and so forth so this idea of just you know work 
and what obviously slavery is the most extreme case and i don't want to downplay it by you know saying even just you know what i'm about to say but but even just this idea when we think about markets and the idea of work overall and quote capitalism in general you know this idea that it's all about that nine to five work then maybe just a, a brief break from it that that wouldn't be something that both these men seems in their minds would think of as, as the good life or, 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 you know, a wholesome character being built that just probably looks like someone trapped within a system really. Well, yeah. And so one of the interesting, so one of the interesting things, Smith is a very measured take. You're, you're right about absolutely about child labor, but just about div- specialized labor in general, he says, having someone perform the same simple task over and over again, all day long is right. really bad for them. Right. The torpor um, of the mind. The other- yeah, but the other thing he says, and I think Franklin attempts to be an, uh, to act as an antidote to this. He says very early in the Wealth of Nations, and I think chapter two, in book one, he says we will start to, as people's place in society becomes more and more informed by their place in the economy, we will start to identify. We'll inevitably we'll start to identify economic success with differences in nature. That I'm. I'm I am successful because I'm smart, I'm special, I'm different in some in some substantial way I'm different. And one of the things and and Smith worries tremendously about this. He says famously that there's not that much difference between a street porter and a philosopher, right? right? But but circumstance uh, or something like that. I forget yeah. the exact passage, yeah. And I I think one of the things that Franklin's autobiography is meant to do is to is to a, to a, attack that notion with himself as the prime example, right? Mm. That 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 not that everyone can become Benjamin Franklin, but he says at the outset that everybody could could go some of the way. And there are lessons here for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, that and it, it's so it's meant to to attack that that notion of deep human difference that has some sort of political and moral relevance which which uh which he finds appalling and so there i think there's there's a nice overlap there where even though as you know smith goes back and forth between theory and sort of the view from ten thousand feet and the view from the factory floor between Mm -hmm. theory and what looks almost like journalism right and uh franklin wants to provide franklin is is sort of Maybe just in the admixture, Franklin is the exact opposite. Franklin is much more at the ground level, much less these are the big lessons to take away. Um, but I think uh, even though their work is written, I mean, Franklin does read The Wealth of Nations. That did happen. Um, but their work uh, occurs independently of one another, but they're they're both in different ways attacking the same problems. Like economic freedom falls apart if people think that economic success is is dependent on something unique about your nature, right? Because because right. why would we be in favor of it? Mm-hmm. Why would the vast majority be of people be in favor of it if they, if they were worried that you had to be some sort of elect in order to succeed, so, some sort of unique special elect yep. in order to succeed? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's why I get very worried sometimes when I. Uh, on that exact note, when I see the, the way even the narrative around a sort of celebrity is framed these days, it's almost like building this sort of unique aristocratic class. Like, oh, look at these unique people. This is why they've achieved this kind of stuff. And that that's the on that exact note, that's why that stuff is scary to me. Like, you know, uh, yeah. and, and people do sometimes feed into this and, you know, this idea that these people are like, you know, 
you know, so unique. We're lucky to have them, gods among men kind of stuff. So I, th- I think that's, that's something that's appalling to people like Smith and, and Franklin, as you were saying. Well, it's, it's also appalling because, you know, the commercial society, the root word is commerce, which mm-hmm. is not originally an economic term. It just means uh, ex- any kinds of exchange between people. Right. And for if we think someone is completely different than us, to take it back to the very first thing we talked about, right, bargaining. It's if, if you think about if you've ever bargained while visiting a country you don't know very much about where bargaining is still a thing that happens all the time, mm. right? And you don't know, like, what is my opening bid? And part of the reason that you don't know, you don't want to, you don't want to pay too much because you don't want to be a sucker. You don't want to pay too little and I, or offer too little and end up insulting the person. And it's really hard. You know, it's, it's, a, it's very difficult to sort out because uh, of the cultural gap between you and the person you're engaged in commerce with that if if society begins to think in the in the way your celebrities are different the rich are different the economically successful are different those all forms of commerce not only economic but political become more and more difficult because we can't if the fundamental question of any bargain is what will you go for which requires that i know where you are coming from mm-hmm. Right. If we begin to think of ourselves as radically different, um, it will become harder and harder for us to figure out what you will go for. And all of those negotiations that are the hallmark of a free society become increasingly impossible and society becomes increasingly fractious as a result. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that actually takes us to right about the time where I'm going to move us ahead to our formal wrap up. So, so Jeff, I think the conversation was excellent. And then we've talked about a lot. And as our time winds down here, I want to try and bring the conversation full circle and put a finer point on everything. In each episode, I want to make sure that the the guest ultimately has the last word. So let me officially ask you, in everything we've talked about, what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on Benjamin Franklin and how markets promote virtue or a stepping stone to different things, whatever you want to talk about. In other words, if anything, for someone to grab from this conversation, one or two or a few things, what would those be? So I think it'd be one thing that's many things, which is a total cop-out, but there you go. Um, and that the one thing is that, uh, is that Econot, for Franklin, the one thing he was really good at, which was working hard, making money, understanding how, how economies worked, understanding how to, how to get ahead in business, right? There are some pretty, like, they're almost how to get in business, ahead in business pieces of advice early in, in his autobiography. But that, that singular focus that the, the economic prosperity, that singular focus generated allowed him to become all of these other things mm. that, that, out of this, this one thing was the was the thing that made possible him becoming a polymath, him becoming uh, a, a Renaissance man, him becoming someone who was good at everything. That that everything would never have been possible if he wasn't good at the one thing. But so he he he's an opponent of, and I think Smith is too. He's an opponent of a of a singular focus because he's in he's in favor of people being multifaceted, complex creatures. I mean, the argument in told, it, told in positive terms by Franklin is just another version of the argument told in very 
in in very troubling terms by Smith about about specialized labor or about child labor, where these people only get to be one thing. They only get to be an economic creature. And that's terrible. Um, For for Franklin, it's the positive version of the same story. The economy allowed me to be these other things. And this economy will allow you to be these other things. Excellent. I think that's a great place to leave it. Jeff Kello, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. It was great. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Seguin. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Bye.